Amen. You may be seated. Such a sweet time of worshiping the Lord together this morning. I enjoyed it so much. And I look forward to that day in which we will praise him forevermore face to face. Something about that thought just grips me. Singing his praises directly to him when we can see him. Ah, That day comes. I invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Now, it's been about a month since we've been here. uh, So I'm starting with the same first 14 verses of chapter 6 that we looked at uh, last time. But I'm going to be looking at it from a slightly different angle, and I pray that uh, your memory will be jogged as, uh, as we work through this again. I'm looking at it this morning specifically from the perspective of baptism and what that ought to mean for you and me. Uh, I won't reread the whole, the whole passage this morning, but I do want to just draw your attention particularly to the last couple of verses beginning in verse 12. And so if you just look with me, I'm going to read verses 12 to 14. And then, uh, as is our our custom, we'll pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open our minds and illuminate the text in front of the page, and and then we'll get to work. So if you would, look with me. Romans 6, verses 12 to 14. Let not sin, Paul says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 14 brings this section, verses 1 to 14, to a conclusion. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. What a sweet promise. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Would you please bow with me this morning? Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for the gift of your word and what you are saying to us. And we pray this morning that as we dig into this text, that we would chase hard after the prize for which you died, the gift which you purchased for us. That we would understand how life in you connects properly to the gift that you gave us of baptism. Help us, Lord, to see baptism correctly and in light of our baptism to chase hard after you in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Do this work in our hearts this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think the church faces its greatest challenges not necessarily when heresy comes walking through the door And we're confronted with heresy. But I think the church faces its greatest challenges and its greatest temptations when the ancient truths no longer grab our hearts. When we become bored with what is orthodox, that's when heresy actually becomes a problem. J.R.R. Tolkien once said that the most regrettable feature of human nature is how quickly we become unsatisfied with what is good. This morning, we're looking at Romans chapter 6, which starts off, interestingly enough, with a question regarding the meaning and the significance of baptism. And if we understand baptism properly, 
in the context of verses 1 to 14. It should thrill us. It should grab our hearts to understand what exactly it is we are confessing and the life we are embarking upon if we understand exactly what Paul is getting at with regards to baptism here in Romans 6. Now, the reason why this is important for us is because as Baptists, we've been fighting this battle over what baptism means, oh, I don't know, going back to the last four centuries. And at a point in human history in which, by all accounts, we've basically won the argument, nevertheless, even to this day, you will find Baptists desperately striving to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. What do I mean by that? In recent years, we have seen a number of churches and denominations having once held firmly to what baptism truly represents, now suggesting that it is not significant, that it is not meaningful, and that it is something we can discount and do away with. If we understand what baptism means to Paul in Romans 6, and more importantly, what baptism is intended to communicate as God has given this gift to us. My prayer this morning is that we would never surrender on baptism, that we would hold it not only as a precious ordinance given to the church, but as an interpretive sign of the scriptures and of the gospel and what Jesus is really doing in our lives. You say, well, what do you mean by that exactly, Pastor Josh? An interpretive symbol. Well, to understand this passage in its entirety, I'm just going to go ahead and jump to the conclusion for you this morning. We're going to start at the end and then go back to the beginning and unfold exactly what Paul is saying. So look with me, verse 11, verse 12, I beg your pardon. Paul, arguing in terms of what the meaning of baptism is and what exactly it is that we're confessing when we submit ourselves to the ordinance of baptism, comes to this conclusion. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not, he says in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. About five weeks ago, when we first began to unpack this passage, we introduced this passage with that famous Russian monk. I won't name him again for you this morning. Perhaps we've listened to too much Boney M over the holidays, so I won't say his name again. But essentially, he is just a figurehead of all that is wrong when we approach the scriptures with the viewpoint that grace is nothing more than a credit card, that we can live life however we want. Paul starts off this entire section saying, should we just go on living in sin because of grace? Does it matter how we live? And of course, his answer to that is, it certainly does matter how we live, and no, we should never live in sin. He comes to the conclusion. He says, therefore, in light of everything he's just said in verses 1 all the way down to verse 11, in light of all of that, therefore, let not sin reign in your bodies. It would be analogous to us going on a trip somewhere, say, to the Philippine Islands. And of course, during World War II, we know that there were many Japanese soldiers who were never repatriated back to Japan. And in fact, if you fly over some of these islands in the Philippines and you're looking down from a plane or a helicopter, you might see there, as others have done in the past, fields that are neatly symmetrically arranged, rice fields and deep in the jungle of the Philippines. And of course, farming rice this way in neat, perfect lines with neat, perfect symmetrical rows, that isn't a tradition of the Filipinos. That's a Japanese cultural custom. 
to put everything exactly right in, in uh, perfectly uh, symmetrical lines and rows. And no one, having seen that from the air, would then, upon landing that plane, go in search of this very, very old, most likely leftover soldier from World War II. No one would ever go into the jungle and find his hut and find this 100-year-old man now farming and go up to him and say, here I am, 20, 30-year-old young man in the prime of his life. No one would go up to that 100-year-old soldier and say, I surrender. And have him go back into his hut, fetch his rusted-out World War II-era rifle, and then say, yes, you're my prisoner now. Get to work. Obey me. Farm my rice for me on my behalf. That is the analogy that Paul is working with here. When you have so many saying that what Christ has done on the cross is merely to cancel the debt that you owe, to forgive the sins that you've committed, if that is all that Christ is doing, and if that is all that we talk about, we are preaching only half of the gospel. What Jesus gives to you and me, as Paul draws out here in Romans chapter 6, is not merely that the battle, the war against sin has been once and forever won, but that now he gives us the grace in order to live in faithful obedience to him. There is a power now that is given to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives us the actual ability to live a life pleasing to him, to turn away from sin, and to live in faithful obedience. That's what Paul is drawing out in terms of the conclusion here. And he says, if you look, he says, don't, verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments for an unrighteousness, which I would take, that's my way of saying, don't go up to an old World War II, 100-year-old uh, man and present yourself to him as his captive, as though World War II was never won. You couldn't possibly be overpowered by this man. He has grown frail and weak by the savage progression of time. But moreover, that war was forever won. Why would you search him out in order to surrender to him? In the same way, Paul says, don't search out sin, don't present yourself to sin in order to obey its passions. Jesus won the war. He goes further. He says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, which is to say that there is now an animating power in you. Once you were dead and dead in trespasses, you were like zombies. You could do nothing but live a vile life that was at war with God. But now, because of Jesus and our faith in him, we've been brought to life. The old man is crucified. The old us is gone forever. So live life as though you're alive. Because you are, Paul says. And he concludes in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Law is the penalty phase. Law is there to show us what we ought not to do. But law could never, ever empower us to live a life that was pleasing to God. But grace can. And that's what Jesus has given to us. Now, I want to stop there and say you are not under law, but under grace. And I want to draw that out for us today because that means something special for us as Baptists. All of this, being not under the law, but being under grace, 
no longer being under condemnation, but being empowered to live a life that is pleasing to God, all of this is communicated in baptism. Baptism is our confession that we are not under the law, but that we are under grace. And you might say, okay, pastor, I'm a Baptist. I'm going to a Baptist church. Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal in the sense that you and I might sometimes take this confession as though it is irrelevant or insignificant, as though it is not important. But it is an interpretive sign for how we read all the scriptures and how we understand what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's important for that reason, and for that reason alone, we need to get it right. After all, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And he gives us that promise, I am with you always. But in Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, that call from Christ to go and make disciples and to hold forth the blessing of Jesus being with us always begins with baptism. In other words, if we don't get baptism right, our understanding of the gospel over time will become flawed, but also if we don't get baptism right, we don't get the Great Commission right. So look at what Paul says here, beginning in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Having understood grace, having understood that we've been separated now from our old way of life by the power of what Christ has done on the cross, are we then just to go on living in sin in order that grace may abound? In other words, is grace like this thing in our life where we can just go on living however we want and it doesn't matter how we live because Jesus will always just forgive us? In other words, are we going to reduce grace down to a truncated gospel where all grace is is endless forgiveness and in fact becomes an encouragement to live in sin? This is Paul's question. He says, no way. That is a false gospel. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And now he's going to pose a rhetorical question. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Don't you know this by virtue of your baptism? The question is a rhetorical one, meaning if you have participated in the ordinance of baptism, if you've gone through the waters of the baptistry, then you ought to know this because the act you're engaging in is a confession of this. The reason I can say that is because if we look at this text, linguistically, textually, it ties together really well. First off, there are three no verbs in this passage that all tie together. The first one, I've just read it to you, verse 3. Do you not know? So if you have a pencil, I invite you to circle that in your Bible. Do you not know that we who are baptized were baptized into Christ's death? In other words, you ought to know this. But then he also frames it in terms of the positive, what we know, what we are declaring to you as we should know. Paul says that two more times. The first is in verse 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And then if you jump on down to verse 9, he says it again. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. So in verse 6, he says, this is what we know. And in verse 9, he says, this is what we know. And both of those are an answer to the rhetorical question that he poses in verse 3 in which he says, don't you know? Don't you know that if we've been baptized, this is what we know to be true? 
And then look at how he then unpacks the meaning of baptism. Baptism, he says in verse 3, is where we are being immersed into the death of Christ. He says in verse 3, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Meaning Jesus died for sins. He paid the penalty. Therefore, we join with him, we become united with him when we are baptized And we are declaring our sins to have been punished and atoned for on the cross. We die together with Christ, he dying in our place on the cross. This is what Paul is saying. We know this. And then if you jump down to the next part, he says, we were buried therefore with him, verse 4, we were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that. So there's a purpose here. And the purpose isn't merely that our sins will be forgiven. That is crucial. That is foundational. But that is not the ultimate and final end. He says, we were buried with him in order that our sins would be canceled, atoned for, the debt taken away, in order that, here it is, the purpose for why he has done all of this, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we also, just as Christ has been raised, we also might walk in the newness of life. I don't want to get too nerdy here this morning. You guys know I love Greek. And I could get all kinds of meticulous with the Greek text here. I'm not going to do that. But the way that Paul words it here in this last clause, he's not saying there's a day coming in which you're going to raise from the dead. That is certainly too true. There is a day coming in which you will put off your old dying body and put on a resurrected body. But the grammar of that last clause is written in such a way that what Paul is trying to say is you enjoy that new life right now. Before you put on the resurrected eternal body that will never see corruption and never die, you first put on a transformed, born-again, renewed soul, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who cleanses you from the inside out. That's what Paul is saying. He mirrors that answer. The first part comes in the next paragraph, beginning in verse 6, where he says, we know that our old self died with Jesus. And then you go to verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, in this next construction, it's a little bit backwards because there's intended to be a symmetry, a mirroring of these verses. But the key passage here, the key verse here is actually verse 8. He says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So in this passage, he says, don't you know that if we've been baptized, we died to our old way of life, our sins were atoned for, all of that was put away, And then just as Jesus was raised, so also we will be raised to walk a new life. Don't you know that? Well, unfortunately, I'm afraid not everyone knows that. Not everyone views baptism that way. Now, before we begin to discuss that, I just want to illustrate what we're talking about here today and give it its proper priority. A number of years ago, The president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a fellow named Dr. Albert Moeller, proposed a 
system of priorities in terms of how we should understand various doctrines in terms of their effect on us and how we should relate to them and relate to other Christians by means of these doctrines. And he called it theological triage. Now, you may be familiar with this term in, from regards, in regards to hospitals, emergency rooms. You go into the ER, and immediately you're going to see a triage nurse. The French word means three, basically to break it down into three. And there are three categories. They're super urgent. This person needs to go right in, right away, needs immediate medical attention. His life hangs in the balance. That would be like level one. Level two is, this is urgent. We need to attend to this, but this person can wait just a little bit because they're not right now on the verge of death. And then level three is everybody else who basically doesn't have their own family doctor, right? That, that, which is the majority of the people that are coming into the ER at this point, right? That's intended to be a little joke for all of us Canadians who use socialized medicine. None of you are laughing. That's okay. Because you can't laugh about it at this point. But anyway, but anyway, um, all of that to say there are three levels of, of classification, of triage, Right? Well, Dr. Muller proposed a similar system in terms of dealing with theology. See, we all have a tendency to make mountains out of mohills. We all have a tendency to say, no, this truth requires that you and I come to blows. But does it? He proposed theological triage. Level one, truths and doctrines which you must believe in order to be saved. Level one, if you don't believe in these things, you don't know Jesus, you're not forgiven, you're not going to heaven. That's level one. And that's very serious. Level one doctrines are those truths which we ought to have in common, which we must have in common with every believer, every true believer in the world. But then we have level two doctrines. Level two doctrines are those types of doctrines which are necessary in order for us to have fellowship together within the church. And there's a wide variety of doctrines that fit into this category. In other words, when it comes to level two doctrines, you and I might disagree over the significance or the meaning of this doctrine. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a believer, not going to heaven, but it does mean that you and I read the scriptures very differently. And we've come to very different conclusions and we disagree on this. This isn't something you have to get right in order to go to heaven, but it is something that you'd have to get right if you and I were going to covenant together in a church and be membership, be members in the same church family. And then you've got level three doctrines, which are like the fun doctrines that we all like to just argue about, and it doesn't really matter uh, whether we agree with each other. We can still fellowship together in a church and disagree on these things. You might be saying, oh, what doctrine are you talking about there, Pastor John? I'm talking about eschatology, always eschatology, level three. We believe, in order to be orthodox, that Jesus is returning to this earth at a point in time of his choosing bodily to rule. When that happens, what that looks like, what happens to the church before and after or during and all the mess that goes on in between all of the rest of that, we all disagree. Not, not all of us disagree with all of us, but we can welcome a wide range of differences of opinion on those issues. Where does baptism then fit into the equation? It would be a level two doctrine. Now, the tension that arises then, and what we've seen within our denomination and what we've seen in many, many other denominations, is we recognize genuine believers who love the Lord, who have given their lives to Christ. They are saved. 
They are born again. But they read the doctrine of baptism differently. And we, in loving them and acknowledging that they're born-again believers, we want to welcome them into our churches. After all, if you think about some of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, there are some fantastic ones that have taught me, and I'm sure some of you, by extension, a number of incredible truths from Scripture. But upon this issue of baptism, we have not seen eye to eye. So you need to make sure you really understand baptism because at the end of the day, if you're going to read the books of, say, R.C. Sproul or Kevin DeYoung or B.B. Warfield, yeah, see, most of you are like, what, B.B. who? I was with you on the first two names. You've lost me now. But a whole host of theologians. If you're going to say these guys are true born-again believers and they are masters at exegeting the Scriptures and yet at the end of the day, they can't come to my church. If you're going to say that, you better have a real good reason. Are you following me, First Baptist? If you're going to withhold membership to individuals who clearly love Jesus and are clearly born again, but you're going to say you cannot be a part of my church, you need to understand why. Now, I don't need to go through all the ins and outs of the doctrine of baptism because upon membership here, you sat in a membership course in which we explained all of this to you. We could go through the textual data. Immersion, baptizo, means to immerse. Nobody disagrees on that. Even individuals, Roman Catholic theologians, Lutheran theologians, Anglican theologians, all would agree textually, linguistically, the Greek word baptizo means to immerse. That's what it means. And yet, the Roman Catholic Church going all the way back to the 3rd and 4th century, began to struggle with what about babies who die in their infancy? And, uh, you know, where do they go when they die? Do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? And tragically, they elevated the issue of baptism to being synonymous with salvation. Do you see that? Now, I've just taken time to tell you that these are not on the same level, you do not have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. And yet, when presented with this difficult theological conundrum of babies dying in infancy, as the child mortality rate was far, far higher back in the 3rd and 4th century than what it is today, there was this drive to give some sort of reassurance to young grieving parents who'd lost their little one and were now curious to know about this person's eternal soul. And so they said, what we can do then is we can give parents reassurance of their child's eternal destiny if we can somehow suggest that we've cleansed their souls in the process of baptism. Therefore, let us allow for infant baptism. Then from that, we begin to enter into other levels of confusion. Taking a two or three or four or five or six-day-old little guy and plunging him beneath the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then pulling him up again, why, that's quite traumatizing. A little guy is screaming his head off. The parents are like, whoa, what are you doing to my kids? So they said, we've got to come up with an easier way. There has to be a mode by which we can baptize this kid, and it's not so traumatic. And that's when we begin the process of sprinkling. And then millennia pass, and confusion dominates. 
And we have, to this very day, conflated the issue of baptism with salvation. Jesus, speaking to the thief on the cross, said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. And what did that thief do? What did he have to say in order to be saved? What work did he have to perform? Well, not nothing at all. There was no work. There was no great deed. He certainly wasn't baptized. He never came off that cross. Despite all of that, confessing Christ as Lord, placing his faith in Jesus, Jesus said, upon that profession of faith, you will be with me in paradise today. What do the Roman Catholic theologians do with that Bible passage, I wonder? Well, they do an awful lot with it. Uh, We're going to have communion here in a few minutes, so I don't want to take the next five hours to explain it to you. Suffice it to say, they talk all around it and ignore it and just kind of move on. But they use creative ways of talking all around it. I'll I'll put it that way. For you and me today, we understand that faith saves, and upon our confession of faith, we need to be baptized. But we do have legitimate brothers and sisters who see the scriptures differently. And this is what I want to point out to you. It isn't so much Roman Catholics, but I'm thinking in particularly of Reformed evangelical Christians who are closest to us in terms of their theology, who might, say, be a part of the Presbyterian Church. Okay, these are individuals who would be evangelical, born again, committed to the Scriptures, but believing in infant baptism, also known as paedo-baptism. I say, why do they think that? Well, I will tell you why they think that. Two different theologians in particular, whom I've read extensively on this issue, of course, John Calvin, the great reformer, with his massive, massive magisterial works, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, nine volumes, correctly identifies in his systematic theology that salvation is by faith, and yet coming to the topic of baptism makes a devious swerve, which exegetically, textually speaking, I cannot justify, and he cannot either, though he tries. Calvin defends paedo-baptism, or infant baptism, on the basis of the parallel that he notes between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. The heart of Calvin's argument is that the meaning of circumcision and the meaning of baptism are one and the same in both the Old Covenant as well as the New Covenant. Baptism, then, he argues in the New Testament, objectively represents cleansing from sin, mortification of the flesh, and union with Christ, and circumcision in the Old Testament served, according to Calvin, the exact same purpose. He writes, quote, A spiritual promise was given to the patriarchs. He's talking about Abraham. A spiritual promise was given to the patriarchs in circumcision, such as is given to us in baptism, since it represented for them forgiveness of sins, and baptism represents that for us, Calvin concludes. Now, although the visible ceremonies of circumcision and baptism are very, very different, very, very distinct, according to Calvin, they represent and they symbolize the exact same thing. Thus, Calvin argues, quote, the promise, therefore, is the same in both, namely that of God's fatherly favor, of the forgiveness of sins, and of eternal life. 
then the thing represented is the same, namely, regeneration. End quote. So Calvin is saying that babies who were circumcised in the Old, Co- in the old Covenant were regenerated as a result of their circumcision. Now, a little later on, he's going to run into this in his institutes, and he's going to realize that presents a problem because most of us know of kids who were baptized or circumcised and grew up to be total heathens and didn't walk with the Lord at all. It was as plain and as obvious as day. And so he says faith is foundational, and he goes on to argue against the Catholic dogma, ex opere operato, from the work, the work is accomplished, in which they said if you would baptize a kid as an infant, eventually in time he would come to faith. And Calvin argues against that. Nevertheless, he concludes, therefore we conclude that apart from the differences in the visible ceremonies of circumcision and infant baptism, whatever whatever blessings belonged to circumcision must likewise pertain to baptism. And this train of thought has been carried all the way down to the present day. I'll read to you from Louis-Pierre Marcel. He is a French theologian writing in the 20th century, and he is the one most often cited by our infant baptism friends today. The covenant of grace is Pierre Marcel's sort of uh, interpretive framework, how he's looking at this. And he says that when it comes to the doctrine of the covenant of grace, it is, he says, the covenant that is the germ, the root, and the pit of all revelation. So every part of the tree and every part of the fruit, all of it, all of it is found in the covenant of grace. And consequently, it is the germ, the root, and the pit, he says, quote, of all theology. It is the clue to the whole history of redemption. Now, you might be thinking he's getting ready to talk about justification by faith alone and Christ alone. But that is actually the introduction to his treatment of the doctrine of infant baptism. You see, these gentlemen are really emphasizing baptism, and even though they would outwardly deny that baptism leads to regeneration, they're really seeming to imply that with their words, aren't they? What New Testament support do these theologians offer? Well, there's only one passage that comes close to suggesting the possibility that baptism in the New Testament corresponds to circumcision in the Old Testament, and that's Colossians chapter 2. Don't flip there. Just listen. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writing to the church at Colossae says, In him also, Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Nowhere in here does Paul equate in a one-to-one relationship baptism with circumcision. He's using circumcision not even in its literal understanding as a rite that you perform on an infant child. He's using circumcision in the way he has metaphorically used it both in Colossians and in Romans, talking about putting off the hardened foreskin of the heart. He's referencing a spiritual circumcision, not a physical circumcision. 
The best thing we can say is that this is an illustration speaking about spiritual matters, not fleshly matters. And on the basis of that illustration, that metaphor, Paul says, yes, there could be a way of illustrating what's happening in baptism with regards to what's happening spiritually when God puts off the foreskin of our hearts. There is nowhere, anywhere in the New Testament where you will find baptism equated to circumcision, the literal practice of circumcision, in the Old Testament. And there are three crucial issues here. They are speaking about Genesis chapter 17 and the promises given to Abraham, and they're conflating this under the idea that just as God gave grace to Abraham when he gave him the covenant of circumcision, so also God gives grace to us and our kids today, same as he gave grace to Abraham and his kids back in the day, but he gives grace to us in the current time by means of baptism. So just as Abraham was commanded to circumcise his kids, so also we, in order to see grace extended to our kids, must have our kids baptized. Three problems. First, Genesis chapter 17, verses 12 to 13 shows that circumcision was not only given to the male children, but, to, but also to all the other male members of the household. What's ironic about this is that in the early 20th century, You had Presbyterians baptizing their children, but they had servants that worked in the home, that lived in the home. This is before the rise of the civil rights movement, of course, but we're talking about African-American household servants, not slaves, employed, but living in the home. Were they baptized? No, they were not. But there's one other issue here. The Old Testament covenant... The covenant given to Abraham said male members should be circumcised. So is it just the male children under the new covenant who are to be baptized? No. Indeed, they're baptizing their daughters just as well as their sons. So when it comes to looking at the covenant given to Abraham and understanding the new covenant and the new symbol the old symbol of circumcision juxtaposed with the new symbol of baptism, even though they're arguing that there's a one-to-one correlation, they're actually giving quite a bit of interpretive leeway for how it's implemented in the new covenant, but insisting that the new covenant must follow exactly like the old covenant. Well, you're like, I'm kind of confused. What's the point of all of that? (laughs) It's how we read the scriptures. And it's how we invent these hermeneutic gymnastics to kind of jump through these hoops in order to justify certain things. The second issue is this. In doing all of this, paedo-baptists or individuals who suggest that infant baptism is necessary are really over-spiritualizing circumcision. I don't think you can over-spiritualize anything more than Pierre Marcel did when he said that the covenant of grace as the prelude to his doctrine of paedo-baptism is, quote, the root, the pith, of all revelation and consequently all theology. Are you overloading this a little bit? I think so. I think so. So they over-spiritualize it. And then the third thing, they fail to understand the Abrahamic covenant through the lens of the New Testament. The significance is that Abraham exercised faith. Remember what Paul says in Galatians It is the children of faith who are the children of Abraham. Abraham exercised faith 
And as Paul makes quite clear in Galatians, it was after he exercised faith that he was then given and he received the sign of circumcision. Paul says, Know, therefore, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Similarly, as you and I have seen in Romans chapter 4, verses 9, verse 3 and then verses 9 to 12, back in chapter 4, shows us that faith and not circumcision is ultimate and primary to Paul as it comes to salvation. Reformed paedo-baptists pay inadequate attention to the way that the New Testament interprets the newness and the betterness of the new covenant. What we're talking about is how we read the scriptures. Now, are these people saved? Yes. Are they our brothers in Christ? Yes. But fundamentally, they read the Bible very differently than we do. And the reason why that matters to you and me in terms of who we welcome into membership in this church is if we're reading the Bible differently, it's only a matter of time until we lose unity within this church. And it becomes an even bigger issue, particularly if we welcome paedo-baptists into our midst who are holding to this notion that, if, that all they need to do is baptize their children as infants and then sooner or later their kids will come to faith and that in the meantime we should extend all of the blessings of fellowship that we have within the community of the church until that time they come to faith. You know what's going to end up happening is in very short order this church will not look like a church anymore. We'll have people in our midst who are not even Christians, not even born again, yet believing themselves to be on the basis of their infant baptism. So this is why we can't live together in a church. Not only do we read it differently, very differently, but the long-term consequences of it based on how we understand the scriptures can be very, very disastrous. Do I love R.C. Sproul? Absolutely. Kevin DeYoung? Absolutely. B.B. Warfield? Or a whole host of others? Wonderful, great men of God who've taught me many things from the scriptures. And yet this is an important truth which you and I would do well to hold to closely. And the reason for that is because we're aspiring to know Christ in the fullness of who he is. In our day and age, the tendency is to say, what is the lowest common denominator that we need to have in order to welcome people into, first bapt- in, into the church? That's not necessarily what we do here. Don't, mis- don't misunderstand me. The question is, what is the lowest common denominator? How much do we require people to believe? How much do we require people to understand? How much do we require people to be saved before they are members in our church. The lowest common denominator. And when you're working towards that lowest common denominator, do you know what happens? It gets lower and lower and lower. But do you know what Christ has called us to? Not to the lowest common denominator of fellowship with him. He's called us to perfect unity with him. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, the night before Christ is to be crucified. 
Jesus prays to the Heavenly Father, and he says, for their sake, for the disciples, these 11 that are with him, for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, that they would have unity, that they'd be together, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes on to say, the glory that you have given me, I give to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one in order that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Do you know what Jesus is praying for? Do you know what he is on his knees the night before he is to be crucified, crying out to God and asking God to do? I tell you this, however you understand that passage, he's not praying for the lowest common denominator. Now, I love these guys. Don't get me wrong. But if we partner together in the church, we are not striving towards the fullness of unity in Christ that Jesus himself calls us to. Now, they would say, you guys are all wrong about your believer's baptism, your confessional baptism. Of course, we say, you guys are all wrong about your pedo-baptism, your infant baptism. We can love them because they're brothers, but this marks a radical departure in terms of interpretation. And we could not aspire to the unity with them that Christ calls us to. That is so important. And the reason is this. Having unity in Christ, not to the lowest common denominator, but striving to have that unity to the highest common denominator with brothers and sisters is a path towards refreshment, encouragement, blessing, and joy. Paul, coming to the end of his ministry, has a slave named Onesimus, which has run away from home. And he's sending this slave back to his owner, an individual named Philemon. And he's going to ask Philemon to accept this person back and welcome him as a brother in Christ, even though he ran away. He prefaces his letter by thanking God for Philemon because Philemon has given for the church. He makes this statement, I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. He says, I know you love all the saints. He's getting ready to say, oh, oh by the way, here's a saint that I'm sending back to you that you need to love, right? But before he says that, he says, I know you love all the saints, and I pray that the fellowship, the ESV translates it sharing. You might interpret that to mean evangelism. That's not what he's getting at exactly. He says, I pray that the sharing or the fellowship of your faith may be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. He's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And Philemon has always looked at Onesimus as a slave, as property. Onesimus runs away, stumbles into Paul in a city thousands of miles away in Rome. 
Paul leads this young kid to faith in Jesus Christ. He becomes a brother and he says, now you've got to go back and reconcile with your former slave owner. You've got to go back and square things with Philemon. But when he sends him back, he says, Philemon, he gives this letter to Onesimus and he sends it with him back to Philemon. He says, Philemon, understand something. I'm praying for you that you would understand the fullness of Christ through the sharing of your faith, the fellowship of your faith. And it's implied at the beginning, but definitely stated at the end. That means coming to a place of unity and harmony with a man that has wronged you and run away from home and possibly stolen from you. This former slave who was your property. We're called to do that. No matter how difficult the situation, no matter how we've been harmed, no matter how we've been sinned against, and this is what we're confessing in baptism, that because Jesus lives, he gives us the power now not to hold on to those old grudges, not to hold on to those old hurts. He gives us the power now to walk in the freedom of the forgiveness that he purchased for us We are not under the condemnation of the law. We are empowered by grace. Today is January 8th. And you may not be aware of this, but it actually marks the 67th anniversary of the death of Jim Elliott. I'm sure you've probably heard of Jim Elliott before. He's a missionary to Ecuador. He and four other missionaries were killed in Ecuador, in the jungles of Ecuador, in 1956 during Operation Alca, which was their attempt to evangelize the Harani people of Ecuador, natives. They were able to land on a sand spit in an interior portion of the jungle. They were coming with Bibles. They had reached out and previously made contact with these people and now they were making, they, they had reached contact by lowering Bibles and things to them in the village, but now they were making their first face-to-face contact. And of course, upon landing and upon trying to share the gospel, immediately these people came out of the woods and speared all five of these missionaries to death. It was a tragic event that shook the world at that time. Jim Elliott, and I'm sure you've heard this quote before, Jim Elliott is famous for this line, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a powerful way of stating, restating the spiritual principle that we have learned from Christ, who taught us in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. And as we come to a conclusion this morning, one of the things we have to cherish and treasure here is that we're called to come to the end of ourselves, to lose ourselves in order to gain Christ and through Christ to gain a deeper, closer unity with each other. Jim Elliott and four missionaries died this day, almost 70 years ago now. He says this, he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But do you know what? He wasn't the only one who said that. Do you know who else said that? His fellow missionary. 
I lost my place in my notes. It lines up perfectly with what his fellow missionary, Nate Saint, wrote. We are going to meet the Harani people. The way I see it, he writes in his journal, we ought to be willing to die for this. We have before us the prospect of meeting new brothers in Christ. But we have before us the prospect of losing our lives. In the military, we were taught that to obtain our objectives, we had to be willing to be expendable. Missionaries are given that blessing of facing expendability for the sake of growing closer with those they are trying to reach. Very wordy, if you put that alongside Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a much wordier way of saying essentially what Jim Elliott was saying. These two journal entries were written on the same day by two men that were together for the cause of Christ. Neither one of them knew what the other had written, but undoubtedly because of their desire to know Jesus more fully and more completely and because of God's call on their life to reach these people, unbeknownst to them, they're thinking the same thought. They're cherishing the same truth. And they're loving the same people. And it would be 35 years before it was realized that on the same day these men are writing this journal entry at the same time in different rooms of the house. Church, I don't know what's going to happen with many other churches. I'm convinced that this push towards the lowest common denominator is not healthy and will only lead to the slow, gradual implosion of the American church, the Canadian church. But I'm so grateful that I'm a part of this church. And my prayer for you and me, something like baptism is a way that we interpret the scriptures and it's a sign that points to a full understanding of the gospel. That full understanding of the gospel is this. Jesus empowers you and me to lay down our old lives in order to know the fullness of Christ to walk free of sin, and in the process of that, to grow closer to each other. Let's cherish that this morning. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you so much for your word and its clarity to us. As we have been baptized, we walk free from sin. To be baptized requires knowledge. We must know these things if we would confess these things, and it is in the act of baptism that we confess these things. There can be no baptism apart from the knowledge and the understanding of the one being baptized. Lord, help us to hold true to the miraculous truth that you save us in sending forth your Spirit. Help us to do that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.